Tonight's passage is Luke 8, 40 through 56. Jesus heals a woman and Jairus' daughter. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only a daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anybody. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. We are in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. We're going to go through the rest of that chapter. And last week, the text that we covered was this demon-possessed man uh, in, the, in the country of the Gennesaret. And he was totally transformed by Jesus. And we found that Jesus agreed to the request of the people for uh, them to depart from them, those Gennesaret people. And we also read that the, he also abided with or agreed with the demon's request to kind of head off too. But he didn't agree to the request of this former demoniac. So essentially what we find here is that this trip that Jesus took, the fruit of it was this one guy. And essentially everyone else rejected him. So... I don't know how you would gauge that in terms of like a successful missionary trip or anything like that. But anyway, um, there's this beautiful church there in the country of the Gerasenes now. And we can probably credit credit it back to this guy that something happened there. So I wish I, I, I brought a picture of that and I totally forgot to do that. But maybe next time. So Jesus got into this boat. He returned back to the other side where he came from. And, and, I, and, I, and I wonder what the disciples were thinking as they were getting back into that boat. Because when they first left the shore of the other side to go over there, I'm sure they weren't thinking, oh, there's going to be this horrible storm. We're going to encounter this demoniac guy that is really crazy and naked and just going cuckoo and lives in the cemetery and has a bunch of demons inside of him. And so now that they're getting back into the boat to go back to the other side, I'm wondering if they're thinking, are we going to have to go through something traumatic again? Like, I hope not. Jesus, don't you dare go to sleep. Please stay awake. Don't do anything. I just want to get home, and I don't want to go through all this stuff. So here we have verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So no storms or anything, nothing like that. They come, and actually it's not some demoniac waiting on the shore saying, ah, who are you? And all this kind of stuff. But it's like a cr- crowd. It's welcoming. And, and they're, they're waiting for him. So Jesus started from the side of the lake to go to the other side. Essentially, the people there reject him. 
And then he returns. And we find that there's a crowd welcoming him, waiting for him. And what's fascinating is that back in verse 37 of this chapter, we find that all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. Get out of here. Then when we get to verse 40, there's this crowd welcoming him, waiting for him. And I find it interesting that there is no objection from Jesus when the Gerasene people ask Jesus to leave. There, there is no debate from them. There is no discussion from them. Jesus just kind of agrees with their request. All right, you want me to leave? I'll leave. And it's interesting to me because I put myself in, in Jesus' sandals or his toms um, because that's what he'd wear, you know. He'd wear toms. Not that he'd buy them because they're very expensive, but they would have been given to him. Anyway, I put myself in Jesus' toms and I find it hard to believe that I wouldn't at least challenge these people as to why they want me to leave. Because I would think that I have a pretty strong case. You have this demoniac that was kind of going cuckoo. He's out of his mind. He's not in his right mind. He's out there doing his own stuff. I put him in a right state of mind. He's clothed. He's sitting down beside me and everything's good. He's not out there lingering amongst the tombs and things anymore. What's wrong with that? Why do you want me to leave? And so there, there was also this thing of like all this effort, right? He, he had to get into this boat. He traveled across the lake. He had to calm a storm. He dealt with legion in that demoniac and he transformed this guy. He, there's this large herd of pigs that was destroyed because of it. And, and he made this guy whole, all this stuff for one guy. And now I got to go back. Are you kidding me? No, I'm staying. So this would be tough for me, but it's not so with Jesus. Jesus, get out of here. All right, I'm out of here. And so he gets back into the boat and he takes off. Which makes me think, why did Jesus go to the country of the Gerasenes? And it was because it was for one guy. It was an individual, it was a person that Jesus went there for. An individual. And we are going to read that it's not about numbers, it's not about how great a work is, it's not about all this stuff. It's about individuals. Jesus is about individuals, about people. Because we'll notice that as he gets to the boat and he goes back to the other side, who does he go back for? Yes, there's a crowd that's welcoming and waiting for him, but who does he go back there for? Because beyond the crowd, beyond the numbers, we find individuals. We find that people matter and that you matter as an individual, that you as a person matter to God. Because when, when he gets there, who does he find? Jairus. One person amongst the crowd. He finds the hemorrhaging woman. One person amongst the crowd. And so, sure, we find Jesus teaching within crowds and teaching within masses. We also find him saying that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And that's in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. And so in our text today, uh, we're, we're going to read about those two encounters, Jairus and the hemorrhaging woman whose name were not given, but individuals within this crowd, within this mass of people. Verse 41, And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Now Jairus was a ruler, he wasn't the ruler. So there were, there were others who were rulers of the synagogue as well. And just as Mark's account informs us in Mark chapter 5, verse 22, now, a ruler of the synagogue was a, pr a pretty important person. 
rulers would run, they would oversee the synagogue. So they would oversee the admin, the operations, all this kind of stuff, the things that were happening there. They would kind of oversee all this stuff. Now the term synagogue, it means a house of assembly or or a house of prayer. Now back in this time, a, a synagogue would be composed of at least 10 Jewish families. That's how they would have and come up with a synagogue. So within this community, most scholars believe that this was in Capernaum, and this was the ruler of that synagogue. And we have some slides of this. So <clears throat> there's Capernaum, and uh, it's a very major port city, and where Simon did his fishing, and uh, Peter and James and sons of Zebedee. Zebedee actually owned all those cranes that he imported from China. And... Um, Han Jin is another name for Jesus. How long do I have to do this for? <laughs> As you're doing that, I'm going to continue. And so the, the, this is a synagogue that has some wealth attached to it. There's um, Rabbi Roland Garrido right there with the blue backpack and red shirt. Um, that's, that's Rabbi Roland. And this is the synagogue in, um, in Capernaum. And so this, this was, and, and Capernaum is the name of the place. And so this is just the entrance to the city. You can go to the next one. And that, that background there is the synagogue. And this is the, more of the marketplace here. So that's a stall of a, of a marketplace. And if you go to your right, that's where the Sea of Galilee is going to be. I'm not sure about the distance. I'm thinking it's about 400 meters, 500 meters to the Sea of Galilee. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but you can go to the next slide. Oh, Rabbi, uh, go to the next one. And the synagogue, the marketplace again. You see that number forty-five? They kind of have each each stall numbered, and they try to keep track of everything. Go to the next one. Okay, keep it there. We're, we'll talk about that one a little bit later. <clears throat> so this synagogue has some wealth attached to it. It's at least ten Jewish families, but there's actually many more. Because if you, if you go to that town, you're going to see how large it is and all the trade that happened there. Zebedee had his fishing business out of there. This, when people kind of debate, oh, it can't be there, it's whatever, it's actually ten, at least 10 families along the Galilee, along that side of it. There aren't that many large cities. So it's a very high likelihood, almost like 99% that this is it. So back in this time, uh, the, 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 within this community... Um, as Zebedee was there and as other businesses were there and all this stuff and all this wealth contributing to this building. Um, actually, Zebedee has a, an inscription on one of those pillars there saying that he was a big donor for that synagogue. So he's a, he's a, he's a baller. So the synagogue was, was the center of the community where people kind of came together to, to pray, to learn, to celebrate. It was, it was like, a, like us like our community center and like our church. And we have all this stuff going on, right? But it's not just a religious center. It's also a political center, an economic center, a social center. You can see that the marketplace is right across the way from the synagogue. So you can see how it's kind of the the center place of this entire city. So to be a ruler of the synagogue, and in particular this one, there was some reputation attached to it. There was some celebrity attached to it. Whoa, you're the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum? That's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty great. So within Jewish circles, this was a place of prominence. This was a place of stature. And with most of the rulers of, of, of a synagogue, Jairus was more than likely 
quite wealthy. He himself had some wealth there. So as a ruler of the synagogue, he spent a lot of hours there. He worked there a lot. He, he knew the happenings of the community. He knew who to hobnob with. And he knew how, who to have close ties with. So people with money, people with political ties, people with, with prominence there, people with influence. So who would that be? Pharisees. Pharisees. People like the Pharisees. People like, like that that had something behind them. And being a ruler of the synagogue, he would also know who to stay away from. So people who had little economic influence, people with little political power, people who didn't have uh, influence over stuff, people who came against the Pharisees, people who came against all those people, the establishment, the established religious people of the time, and who would that be? Jesus. Verse 42. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. So he knows about alliances. He knows who to be in cahoots with and who to avoid. Now, what would make a ruler of a synagogue switch sides from this Pharisee side over to the Jesus side? What would make him do that? To put all this stuff at risk. Love. Love, love for his only daughter. Because I know that I would do anything for my daughters. I would. I I would give up all that. I would risk everything and fall at the feet of my best friend's enemies if I knew that that enemy could save my daughter. I would recant all these other relationships to save that one. I would be able to do that. And so for him... You know, to have all that social standing, to have that economic standing, that political standing, which I don't, but he did, it's obviously obvious that he didn't care. He didn't care about all that stuff. All of, all of that stuff could go by the wayside and just so that he could have a chance to save his daughter. The other stuff didn't matter anymore. Didn't matter that he was a ruler of a synagogue. Now, how did Jairus have this faith that Jesus would be able to do what other rabbis and the Pharisees couldn't do. Because there's no doubt that he had everyone he could think of to come and try to save his daughter. Because he had that kind of clout. He had those kind of relationships. He had that network. He tried every political tie, every financial resource, everything within his power to try to heal his daughter before he had to go to his best friend's enemy to ask for this. I mean, it's just logical. Right, So you turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a large voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. What happened after this? Jesus 
goes over to Simon's house, finds that his mother-in-law is feverishly ill, and he heals her. Now, does any of this story sound remotely similar to Luke chapter 8? There's a ton of similarities here, right? Jesus goes off to the country of the Gerasenes. He heals a demoniac. People tell him to leave, and here he is ready to heal again. It's like all these repeating, repeating things. These people are questioning amongst themselves, what is this? Just like the disciples on the boat questioning, like, who is this? There's like all these similarities going on. Now, how did Jairus have such faith where he didn't care about his reputation? He didn't care about his status, his position, his future. He didn't care about any of that stuff. How did that happen? Because his daughter mattered more to him. Didn't, the other stuff didn't matter to him anymore. His daughter was paramount. And so he loved this adolescent girl. And I think adolescent girls were probably easier to love back then because they didn't have cell phones back then. But... Anyway, he, he witnessed earlier the healing of a demoniac. Right? He witnessed this. He heard of Jesus' fame, including the healing of sicknesses. He's heard all of these stories. And there, there she was, his only daughter, severely ill, knocking on the door of death. And he's exhausted all his resources. He couldn't do anything more. He has to approach Jesus. And so a man who was used to people bowing down before him is now bowing down before Jesus. And Jesus, who who probably was at odds with this guy because he's the ruler of a synagogue, he had to align himself with the Pharisees. It's a political thing to do, and they were antagonistic towards him. But he had to kind of switch alliances. He had no choice. And so the things that seemed to be driving him to Jesus... His love for his daughter, and just this desperation as a father. There's nowhere else he could go. So his relationship with the Pharisees, that's going to have to take a back seat. Verse 42, and as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. So it sounds as if when Jesus, Jesus, uh, Jairus implored Jesus to, to come to his house, Jesus was off. He went off with the crowd. Now, verses 43 through 46. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now I wonder how Jairus felt at this point. He's so desperate. He reaches out to Jesus uh, out of all the people and out, out to the very man who, who punked all of his political, economic, social network. It's like Jesus was the guy who deleted his Facebook account. God forbid. But that's what it was like. And if I was Jairus, I would be really, really frustrated right now. I would be really frustrated. I'd, I'd probably make something up. Right? Like... Oh, Jesus, I touched you. Come on, let's go. Come on. Let's forget all these people. 
I did it. I did it. And so who knows how long these sequence of events happened that he stopped and he addressed this woman. Like we're not told how long all of this is. But I can just imagine the frustration because he's there waiting for Jesus to come back. He finally comes back. He gets on his knees. He implores him. And so now he has all of his 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 posse kind of making a way for Jesus. Like get out of the way. Get out of the way. We got to get to Jairus' house. He's making his way. And Jesus just kind of strolling along. Hey, how are you guys doing? Hey, hi, 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 little boy. And walking around and going up and stuff. And then suddenly, who touched me? And Jairus must be like, what are you talking about? Every, like, everyone's touching you. This whole thing. I have people kind of like making a way for you so we can get to my house. And everyone's trying to get a piece of you. So this, this story of the hemorrhaging woman is actually one of the more profound stories for me. Uh, especially when I visit the Holy Land. Um, this past Thursday, I was talking to a pastor, and um, I was asked, what, what's your favorite spot in the Holy Land? What, what's your favorite spot? And so I told them Capernaum. And I said, there's this exposed road that archaeologists have uncovered because this is a place where I can clearly picture the hemorrhaging woman reaching out to Jesus. And it's right there. It's right there. Because I can clearly picture, it's very vivid to me, because the shore is straight and to the right, that it was a road like this, and they were coming up, and so Jesus, uh, Jairus' guys are making their way, like, get out of the way, get out of the way, we're going to Jairus' house. And I can imagine her strategically placing herself in a corner, because she couldn't compete with the crowds because she's unclean, she's ritually unclean. She can't just go in there and like touch everybody. It's kind of like, oh, I'm making everybody unclean. She couldn't do that. She had to strategically position herself. And I imagine her in a corner like this, that when Jesus walks by, she goes... And so it's so clear to me. The picture is so vivid to me. And that scene there is is so vivid to me because I can picture right there her desperation. I can picture right there her strategically positioning herself. The crowds are coming up this way. I need to go over there. I'm going to wait for them right here. And as I know Jairus is over there, I know they're making their way there. And as soon as he comes in, I'm grabbing him. And so I picture her in that corner. I don't know if that's for a fact. I know that it's in that city, and I know it's at a road just like that road. I just don't know if it's that specific corner. And I can picture Jairus leading the charge, like saying, come on, let's go, with all the people and all the people making way for him and all the powerful people making ways for them and all kind of like the law enforcement or the goons and stuff that he had employed for him. I don't know who he had. Making a way for him, making a way for Jesus. And then what? Jesus said, who touched me? Then Peter says, who touched you? Everyone's touching you. Everyone wants a piece of you. Everyone's touching you. So what do you mean who touched you? I mean, we, we got to go. We got to go. I'm, Jesus, I don't know if you realize this, but that guy's a ruler of a synagogue, which means our, our ministry's set. You know, we help this guy. We're, we're good to go. Any type of problems we have in the future, we can just say like, hey, have you heard of Jairus? Ruler of a synagogue? Yeah, he's our friend. We saved his daughter. So Jesus, this is, this is silly right now who touched you. This guy has clout. This guy has networks. This guy has money. So, so never mind who touched you. This is, this is not important who touched you. And he goes, no, no, no. Someone touched me because I felt power go from me. 
Now, Peter often puts his foot in his mouth. Peter has what we call foot-in-mouth disease. And so, because I, if I were Peter, I would be thinking like, Jesus, I've touched you a lot. And you've never said power has gone from me. Like, Jesus, power go from you? Like, come on, come on. I, I'd be kind of like wondering. Power went from him. And we've touched him a lot. And he's never said anything like that to me. But you ever notice that Jesus is never in a hurry? Even during this time, I don't think Jesus was sprinting to Jairus' house. I think he got out of the boat. He was kind of just walking, like saying hi to people. And they're welcoming him. And he's being hospitable too. That's kind of how I picture Jesus. And he's walking and, and, and he stops to address a woman. And I thank God for this. I thank God that he stops for us. That he's never in too much of a hurry to address our needs and our hurts, and our frustrations, our pains, our losses. He's never too busy for that. He's never too busy for the individual. That he's never too busy to show us how much value we have in his eyes. No matter how insignificant we feel that we are, no matter how little we think we offer the world, no matter what our circumstances, which are pretty bad at times, Jesus sees to it that he stops for those that feel that they themselves are insignificant. And and he gives all of his attention, all of his focus on you. And here he gives all his attention to this woman, just as he does for any of you going through whatever you're going through. Even me, right now, I can pray to God. God, I pray your blessing upon these people. I pray that they experience your love. And he heard me. He focused on my prayer to him just now. That he stopped and he addresses me. And we can do that at any time when you guys throw your prayers to him, when you guys are meditating, when you guys are reading your word. And this is so unlike some of us. Because some of us tend to think that, oh, this person is important in this way or significant in this way. And this this person is insignificant and, and not so important. And we start labeling people and we treat them differently according to their labels. So if we think that someone is of importance, we tend to treat them better. And if we think that someone is insignificant, then it really doesn't matter how we treat them. We don't go out of the way to treat them better. And so Jesus doesn't have any of these labels because Jesus treats Jairus, a ruler of a synagogue, who begged Jesus to help his daughter. He treats him the same way as when he's on his way and this hemorrhaging woman touches him and he stops and he addresses her needs too. One guy, a very significant guy, and one woman, an insignificant person in the eyes of people, and yet he stops for both. Because Jairus was one amongst a big crowd. And you, one would think that, oh, he's doing that because it's a ruler of a synagogue, so that's why he's giving importance to him. No, it's because he needs him. Because a woman needs him too, and she, he stops for her. So it's not about these labels or these status things here. Now, St. Augustine gives us a beautiful quote about God. He says, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Isn't that awesome? He looks at us as individuals. He looks at us as people, as a person, not as numbers, not as projects, not as lost in the crowd. Now, what, is, what this woman had wasn't a physical death sentence, but this woman was uh, living a social death sentence, an emotional death sentence. 
And it wasn't something that was taking her life, but it was something that would take her community, would take away her friends, her family. And because of these blood issues, she was considered ritually unclean. And she had this continuous impurity that she couldn't have any type of relationship or fellowship or friendship with people. And it wasn't that she was contagious of a disease or something like she had cooties or something, right? She she was ritually unclean. So everyone who would come in contact with her would also be considered ritually unclean. And then they would have to go through this whole process of becoming ritually clean. All of this is found in Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19 through 33. We, We don't have time to read it tonight, but you can read it for yourself. That's the background to all of this impurity, unclean, and all that stuff. So she would live life alone. She would live life in isolation, cut off from society, cut off from community, much like the demoniac did, much like lepers did, much like any of those whose lives Jesus actually touched, social outcasts deemed unacceptable by society, yet Jesus reaches out and he touches them. So what other choice does this lady have? She has no other choice but to take a risk, reach out to Jesus, and better to do it Right here, where there are so many people pressing on him, because then, you know, someone might not know, oh, she's unclean, and just do it. Now, the fringe of the garment mentioned here in verse 44, this is more like a tassel that the rabbis wore, and they are even worn today. You can find them, rabbis wearing them today. The references there are Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 41, and also Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 12. So she is going to risk it. She is going to risk touching the rabbi, touching the teacher, making him unclean. But she, she has no choice. She's willing to risk it so that she can be restored. Her faith is actually kind of sneaky. It's kind of covert. It's kind of hidden. But this once hidden faith is going to be an open faith, an overt sort of faith, because verse 47 and 48 happened. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now the woman didn't just physically touch Jesus. She reached out with a hand of faith. That was the important part. Right? There were a lot of people that touched Jesus physically that day. A ton of people. But only this woman was recorded to have reached out with a hand of faith. Right? So when Jesus is asking, who touched me? It wasn't about being physically touched. Someone reached out and touched him with a hand of faith. And when Jesus met someone with real faith who touched him, he noticed power go out from him. The power to heal is inherent in Jesus' very nature as God. It's in him. He can't help it. It just flows out of him, and it automatically heals this woman. It's just innate in him. So you notice what the woman did in verse 47. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now, in one word, what is this? Testimony. Very good. It's a testimony. Someone's very excited to tell us that, too. So this was her testimony. This was her testimony of how Jesus changed her life. And in her testimony, we find that she came out of hiding. That she was overt. And that she she also revealed the divinity of Jesus. That Jesus didn't have to do that himself. 
right? That he, she's saying it. She's the one doing it. And so for 12 years, which is also how old Jairus' daughter is, her life is terrible. Her life's just horrible. And so she spent all of her money trying to find a cure, and there's no medical assistance out there that was able to help her. And in fact, it dried her out financially. Now this woman, um, according to Eusebius, was from Caesarea Philippi. There was a statue that she erected there that was torn down by the Romans when they were trying to go back to pagan worship and things like that. But this is where she's from. It's pretty far from Capernaum. She's traveled a ways to, to get to Jesus and to hear about, where, about this rabbi and where he's from and stuff. So she's, she's spent. All her money's, money's gone. I wonder if the, her last kind of shekels were spent to get here. All of her money gone, all of her community gone. And so no one was going to debate her because everyone around her knew that if they made any contact with her that she'd be ritually unclean. She wasn't going to go about like making everyone unclean. She knew the Levitical law. So how emotionally painful this must have been for her. How, how much she felt all the unacceptance, the not feeling valued, being ostracized, from society, all this stuff. And so she risked everything. She risked to touch Jesus. And when she did, she's healed immediately. Now, some may look at this and be like, oh, that's kind of superstitious. We don't want to do that. You know, just reaching out to touch the fringe of a garment. And we don't, that's, that's, that's pretty lame. That, that makes people like make paper carpets and mail them out and ask for money. And it makes people like cut little pieces of cloth and mail them out and say like, oh, donate this and you'll be healed of whatever you're going through. And all this kind of stuff. But then in verse 48, Jesus kind of addresses the superstition. That this is not the kind of correct way to, to think through these things. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Not the act of grabbing and touching, not the touching of a garment, not, not this tassel thing, not the fringe of a garment. It's, nothing, it's her faith, that it was her faith that made her well and not this other stuff. So Jesus healed this centurion servant, right, with, without touching anything, just his word. And Jesus doesn't have to physically touch in order to heal. So in this particular situation, the woman felt she needed to reach out to Jesus and the touch, to touch the fringe of his garment. And Jesus honored her act of faith, even though this wasn't the purest of faiths, even though this was kind of a hidden faith, a covert faith, something that, that she wasn't open about initially. And she had to do it in a covert way. And Jesus understood and he honored that act of faith, even though it wasn't kind of like the best way to do it. And so some of us might think like, oh, I need to have all my ducks in a row to come to God, to come to Jesus, to do all this. You don't. You don't. In fact, Jesus understands. He understands all the circumstances surrounding why you do what you do. And he understands your, your desire to be with him. So you don't have to worry about, oh, is this the right way to go about doing things? I mean, don't look for the wrong way to go about doing things, but you don't have to worry about getting all your ducks in a row. And then he tells her to go in peace. So it's this peace that is a wholeness of peace, like of soul, of spirit, of mind, of heart, of body. A peace that restores her to family, restores her to community, restores her to her synagogue, to her friends, to her neighborhood. And just as Jesus tells this woman to go in peace, comes this grave news. 
Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Now, this guy uh, obviously has no bedside manner. He's probably works for Kaiser or something. And um, so, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. In verse 50, he says, but Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. So the range of emotions Jairus must have been going through right here, that the feeling of hope when Jesus first stepped off of that boat and he agreed to go to his house, that all that hope that he felt, and then, and then this woman and the anxiety he must have been feeling like, oh, come on, come on. I'm the ruler of a synagogue. Who is this? She's not even from here. And then the optimism witnessing that he healed her, like, oh, wow, that's incredible. And then the fear to hear that she was dead. Like, like, he's just going up and down like this. And then Jesus says, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. In verse 51, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. Now that phrase, and when he came to the house, is intriguing to me because it tells me that Jairus did believe, that he didn't fear and that he did believe, and they continued to go to the house. He didn't call it quits when he can, or when he could have. He could have been like, ah, oh, she's dead. Forget it. Let's forget it. But he actually went. And if Jairus didn't believe, I don't think that they'd make the trek to his house. But he was going to make that trek. Right? And, but, so, so I think that Jairus heard about Jesus. He heard that Jesus raised a widow's dead son in Nain. And he's thinking, we're going. We're going. He said, don't fear. He said, believe. And we're going to go. And so he went. And you notice that Jairus had a part in all of this. He wasn't just sitting passively, just whatever. He had a part in this to not fear and to believe. He had a responsibility here. And so Jesus didn't force his will on him and and do these things. Jairus had an active role to play here. Just like many of us, where Jesus is waiting for us to start walking to that house. We have an active role, not to just sit passively and let whatever happen. We have an assertive role that God is telling us to do things, and we are in partnership with that. We have a role to play in partnership with Jesus in the kingdom. And Jairus had choices to make on whether to keep going to his house or just to say, oh, forget it, guys. We did all we could. Forget it. And so you, now you look at who Jesus allowed to enter with him to the house. And this is actually a really favorite part of mine. Because he invites Peter, John, and James. And to me, it paints this picture of how gracious God is. How gracious God is. Because where are Peter, James, and uh, John from? They are from here. They are from here, and they know the Sea of Galilee really well because they are fishermen. And what did they do? In the middle of a storm, they're crying out. They're going, Jesus, save us, save us. Oh, we're going to die. And, And Jesus calms the storm. And then these guys have a question like, who is this guy? And they wonder about who this guy is. And then they get to the shore, and the demoniac tells them who he is. He's God, dummies. You've been hanging around with him that long, and this guy's God. The demon knew the answers. They themselves didn't know the answers. And, and so they must have just felt so dumb. They must have just felt so dumb because they were, they, they're experiencing all this stuff. And then after that, they get off the shore and they start walking away. And then Peter says, and he questions 
Jesus and says, who touched me? What do you mean who touched you? Everyone touched you. I know I suffer from foot and mouth disease, but everyone has touched you. And so he, all these guys, they're making mistake after mistake. And they're supposed to be like his closest friends and stuff, but they're making all these mistakes. And here Jesus is saying, hey, um, Peter, uh, John, James, come in with me. How deflated these guys must have felt like, oh man, we're supposed to be his disciples and we just keep getting it wrong and we ask questions that even demons know the answers to and I just don't get it. We're, we're just never going to get it. And then Jesus says, hey guys, come on. Here's another chance. Come in and check out something that I'm going to do. It's, it's really cool. I'm going to raise this girl from the dead. And he specifically calls those guys. And so how gracious Jesus is. Verses 52 and 53. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Luke records for us that they were all weeping and mourning, meaning that this girl is definitely dead. There's no question that she's dead. There's some commentary saying like, oh, she was in a deep sleep and all this other stuff. And she's dead. Jesus tells the folks that she is asleep. And so these people laugh at him. So, so these mourners are professional mourners. They were hired. We know that Jairus was a man of wealth. That once this gal had died, the family sent out uh, uh, a Craigslist ad saying like, Oh, professional mourners come over. Our daughter died. Please mourn with us. And so the, the, the more resource the people had, the more people they can pay for mourning. So there's a lot of people that this family could have paid. And so these people weren't family where they could just flip a switch on and off about, like, crying and laughing. Can you imagine, like, her mother? Like, Jesus saying, oh, he's sleeping. She goes, ah, ha, ha, you're so funny. She couldn't, she couldn't flip a switch like that. These guys are professional mourners who flip switches like this. They could flip on the tears whenever they were called to do this mourning thing, right? They could, they could kind of flip those switches pretty easily. So these folks weren't invested emotionally to this 12-year-old girl. So when they hear that she's sleeping, it's easy for them to go from mourning to laughing. They know death. This is their job. They know that when somebody's body feels that cold, when their color looks like that, when their eyes are dilated like that, they are dead. When they're not breathing and there's no pulse, they know that she's dead. So, so they're laughing because they know she's dead. And it's not like someone with emotional investment there where they wouldn't be laughing even though Jesus said such a thing. So this is funny to them. They're laughing at it. And these folks don't understand the metaphor of sleep. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Then in verse 14, Jesus said, Lazarus has died. So it's not that Jesus doesn't know the difference between sleep and death. He knows the difference. It's just that for the believer of Jesus, for the disciple of Jesus, there is no fear in death. That sleeping and death are alike. That in death you die, and when you awake from that death, somber, slumber, you are alive with Christ. It's just as in sleep. You are asleep, and when you wake up, you're awake physically. But in spiritually, when in death, when you die, you are awake when, you're, when you wake up spiritually. So here we have Jesus saying in verse, verse 54, he says, But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. 
Now in Mark chapter 5, verse 41, Mark records for us Jesus saying, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. So this is how a parent would lovingly wake her child up from her sleep. Right? This is, this is Jesus being gentle and tender. This isn't like, you know, wake up, oh, glory, whatever. Right? This is, this is, hey honey, it's time to wake up. It's just like when I wake up my kids. I don't like throw them a bucket of cold water. I won't do that until they're teenagers. But um, I don't do things like that. I'm like, hey, wake up! Or smack them, you know, or something like that. I, I just like, hey, honey, it's time to wake up. Shake her foot or tap her on the shoulder or, you know, do things like that or put her fingers in warm water or something. Um, you know, it's just gentle. And then verse 55, And her spirit returned and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. Her spirit returned was another confirmation that she was dead. Her spirit left and it returned. So it was disconnected from her physical body. It's showing that she was indeed dead. But this is Jesus. This is God. He has authority over the physical things. He has authority over the spiritual things. He's able to return spirit to physical body. So she got up at once and she wanted to eat. Now this is, this is important. She got up at once. Because when people are sick or when they're dying and stuff, even if you revive them, you know, if they went into cardiac arrest or whatever and you revive them, they don't go like, oh, wow, that was a bummer. I died and I came back. Give me something to eat. They don't do that. They're they're there and they're barely breathing. They're barely, you know, able to keep a pulse. They need a feeding tube. They need stuff. It's they don't get up at once, just as this said. Right? And, and so at 12 years old, this kid would remember all of this stuff. This kid would, would remember all this stuff. And I'm sure a lot of people asked her this story like, Hey, so Jesus raised you from the dead? And, and so she would tell them this stuff. And so when she woke up, she couldn't wait to text her friends. She woke up at once. Where's my phone? O-M-G. P-A-W. You won't believe what happened to me. I was like dead, and then I was like awake, and I was like so hungry, and I need pizza, BRB, BFF. And all this stuff, right? And so to eat is really, really significant. Not only to get up at once, but to eat is really, really significant. Why is that? This is showing that she's indeed alive. That she is really alive, and not just alive, but she's well. When you're in the hospital... And you get out of a surgery, and it's not even life-threatening. What do they tell you to eat? Clear broths and water. You cannot eat. Right? They, they want you to wait before you eat. And so this person is ready for food. It isn't like she's there, they get, got her alive, and she's barely like opening her eyes. She's barely breathing. She barely has a pulse. She's barely there. She got up at once, and she was ready to eat. Because when you're really sick, you can't eat. Even when you're sick with the flu. Not even life-threatening. You can't eat. You just want to be resting. You want to be left alone. You want to recuperate. She's ready. This is, this is eating time. She's up. She's ready to go. In verse 56, her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now this is interesting because if you go back to verse 39, Jesus told that former demoniac, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. 
Now, why would Jesus tell that guy to go tell the people all around there what God has done, and yet he tells Jairus and his family, don't tell anybody what I've done? Why is that? I think it's because of all these messianic expectations that people had. Back in that Gentile country of the Gennesarets, the, the Gerasenes, they, they, they were Gentiles, so they had no background as to Messiah. They have no background of this stuff. So, so he told the former demoniac, tell the world about me and what I did, and there's no misunderstandings about me here. So go ahead, tell people. But back at this place, there is a ton of misunderstanding about Jesus. There's a lot of people against Jesus already. Jairus and, and the Jews, they, they already had a lot of misunderstandings about Jesus. So he says, hey, don't, don't go on TBN, don't go on Christian radio, don't write a book about this stuff. Just kind of keep it on the down low, let things play out. Because I, you know, I already have enough misunderstandings here. That this people are not going to understand what's going on. So our text gives us this further evidence of Jesus' power over death. Right, that, that her spirit returned, she got up at once, and, and so all of, us, all of us will face a physical death one day if Jesus doesn't come back first. We're, we're all going to face that. And so where our families, our friends come together and they bid us farewell and they mourn for us and they grieve and our physical bodies will no longer be with our spirit and so, but we're never dead spiritually and for, for those of us who trust in Jesus that we will be with him in a life everlasting that we will go forward with Jesus. And Jesus' power over death of a 12-year-old girl and over the 12-year sickness of a hemorrhaging woman, it demonstrates that Jesus is truly the resurrection and the life, just as the Gospel of John tells us. A 12-year-old girl, the, the age when a girl is starting to enter womanhood, is about to die, and she dies, and then she's made alive. A woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years, a very significant amount of time for any, anybody. If she wasn't married yet, she was never going to get married. And all that time is just passing by. If she was married, she wasn't with her husband that whole time because it would be unclean for them to share a bed. So all the 12 years, no matter what age bracket you put her in, is really significant in terms of a loss of time in her life. And Jesus redeems that. He makes her whole. He, he says, go in peace. And so they laughed at Jesus when he said to that girl, said that she was sleeping and she wasn't dead. But Jesus wasn't lying about that. Jesus was serious about that. You know, it's sleeping and death, it's alike. And, and those who die in Christ, they will arise from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for offering us uh, everlasting life with you. That even in our physical death, you offer us a, a spiritual life. And we pray, Lord, for those who are going through uh, difficult times in their life. That they would not give up. That just as Jairus went against everything in his life to come before you, and he had all these other obstacles on his way to save his daughter, that he still made a decision to fear not, to believe, and to press on to go to his house. That the woman still risked touching the, the tassel of a rabbi, even though it wasn't the purest of faiths. But you honored all those things, Lord. And so, God, as we as feeble people come before you and try to reach out to you as best as we can, given our circumstances, and sometimes they're not the most ideal ways to do it, 
you understand where we're coming from. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is hurting. Anyone here who is just like Jairus, who's just so frustrated and doesn't understand what's going on and all these obstacles, or just suffering through things year after year, and it's been like year 12, and they don't know where to go and what's happening. I pray, Lord, that you would heal them by their faith. In Jesus' name, amen.